Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the things we hold dear and how we can engage better with people different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Professor Miroslav Volf. Miroslav is one of our best-known contemporary theologians. He's the director of the Yale Centre for Faith and Culture and a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. He grew up amidst ethnic tensions in communist Yugoslavia and lived through the civil war, which pit historically Catholic Croats, Eastern Orthodox Serbs and Bosnian Muslims against each other. Miroslav belonged to a Protestant minority. Much of his work as a scholar and activist has been trying to make sense of these experiences. And that includes his books Exclusion and Embrace, which is about reconciliation, and Allah, A Christian Response, about Muslim-Christian engagement. We spoke about his sacred values of non-violence and freedom to self-determine, what it really takes to love people we perceive as enemies, and what civil war and contemporary British public debates might have in common. I really hope you enjoy listening. Miroslav, I'm going to kick off with the big meaty question that I ask everyone, which I had thought you had had some notice on, but due to a technical error, you in fact haven't. So uh, it's a tough question, even with some warning. But having had about 30 seconds to ponder your sacred values, the thing that the things that form you, perhaps one principle or a couple of principles that you really try and live by, and when they're pressed on or threatened, you feel that strong sense of something being compromised, maybe something sacrilegious or, or deeply wrong in your reaction. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, that is a, that is a tough question. Um, partly tough because sometimes uh, what we articulate to ourselves and what we actually operate on may be overlapping, but also very different uh, things. Um, so what what comes to mind I- immediately is probably something like a freedom in life orientation so that whatever whoever I at the deepest level am can be something that's foisted upon me but must be something that comes from deep within um and in that sense, freedom of religion, freedom of our religion, freedom of um, me to be myself. I Nobody can be born instead of me. Nobody can die in my place. Nobody can decide in my place what who I am at the funda- fundamental level. I think that probably would be the uh, mo- most important. That goes together with certain kind of uh, respect, respect of others, respect that I require for who I am uh, with a sense of honesty, um, a kind of clarity about what um, I truly am and what I expect. Uh, And I think it comes with humility. Um, And aligned, closely aligned with that to me is a principle of nonviolence. and I think that's a kind of foundational uh, value that uh, underpins a good deal of, or 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 kind of protects uh, that core conviction. Wow, there's a lot in there to unpack. And uh, the second question we always ask, and it's it fascinates me how much 
often understanding where someone's come from helps illuminate their sacred values and why they've got there. So I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. If you could just uh, explain a little bit about what it was like growing up as a young Miroslav. Um, What was your world and particularly what, were there any particular ideas, whether they were religious or political or philosophical, that were really in the air that you think have shaped the man that you are today? Yeah, so I grew up in in a minister's uh, home in uh, former Yugoslavia at a time when uh, being a Christian wasn't uh, particularly popular. Um, And uh, we were kind of funny kind kind of Christians. We were Pentecostal uh, Christians, uh, pretty robustly, robustly so, but in a a kind of gentle gentle way, uh, meaning that convictions were strong, but... uh, uh, they were uh, not foisted upon either me as a kid or others uh, around. But it was crazy to be a uh, to be a um, school kid in that kind of environment. At the beginning of every academic year, we need to stand. Each student needed to stand up and tell the teacher everything about themselves. They'd write it in the book of records. No computers at that time. And so your name, your father's name, mother's name, uh, your father's uh, profession. Well, my father was a pastor. What's a pastor? They knew what the priest was, uh, but they didn't know what the pastor was. What was the majority religion? The majority religion religion was either Catholic or Orthodox, uh, to about 90% uh, of um, population, or that was the kind of cultural environment, right? So being a pastor, Protestant, which is my father, father was, was not, so I had to kind of describe what Protestant is, and Protestant was always a little bit suspect. Protestant, what are you Protesting against? You know, that was kind of in the air. Um, and then the question came, where does your father work? So my father works in Christ's Pentecostal Church of Yugoslavia. That was the name of the Christ F what? Church, and now I'm 10 years old, whole class is listening to this, and I'm praying to God for to open the earth and swallow me in a kind of cruel mercy, because I can't stand being exposed uh, to being such a, uh, what, um, idiot, to having been born to a, a, a crazy father like this. And that shaped quite a bit of my experience, took me... Um, a bit to come back to faith. Uh, and then I became the only openly professing Christian kid in my entire high school, and that kicked off my intellectual uh, trajectory as a theologian. So I wanted to ask, have you always been a Christian? Because I feel like a lot of theologians um, and, and Christians in public life as well, it's just assumed that they were born into a Christian family, that that's what they stayed as, that there's been kind of no wrestle or struggle or doubt. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about that journey of Perhaps it sounds like rejecting for a little while and then um, finding a way into it yourself. Yeah, as a teenager, I, I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I had to obediently to be present in ch- church services, but I was uh, completely elsewhere. Um, I had my own world in which I was uh, living, and it was just a matter of time when I would, as uh, soon as I left home, this is not was not going to be my life. And... Uh, um, that's where I was uh, headed. Uh, <laughs> what, what changed it was actually not so much um, an intellectual 
matter at that time, but a cultural shift. I have associated Christian faith with this backwardness, with uh, kind of oppressiveness in some sense, with kind of difference, radical difference from the from the environment, and which I then experienced as being oppressive, right? Uh, which it wasn't fundamentally, but but I experienced. It made it, you feel like an outsider. Made, yeah, made me totally feel like an outsider. Something that I really didn't want to, but I belonged to this family, and so you kind of had to. Um, be that you were that, and but you didn't want to be it in some ways. It's really interesting because I've had quite a few Muslim guests who've said very similar things about their teenage years. That there was people who assumed things of you because of your name or your color or your family, and then working out what you actually thought about that can be quite painful. Yeah, and you know, frankly, there were there were identifications that I had with other things that I did not. It's not just what other did to me; it's what I actually wanted, right? Uh, um, at, or at least what I was tempted uh, by the kind of way of life which I wanted to pursue and which seemed to be clashing with what uh, uh, alternative option for me was. And so I went for two summers to uh, help Swedish young people, a group of Swedish young people, uh, kind of travel through former Yugoslavia. And I thought, this is great. Uh, Swedish girls and, uh, you know, being with, uh, with foreigners from outside. Uh, yeah, this is cool. I'll, I'll help them translate for them or whatever. Uh, if, I can, if I can get a summer off. Uh, in, and so two summers like that was just absolutely splendid uh, for me, except that kind of uh, in doing that, I kind of realized that you don't have to be kind of the awkward, culturally awkward thing in order to be, uh, um, uh, we embrace Christian faith. And then I started thinking about the, the, the questions of, of faith. And it started a journey that uh, in the end led to discovery on my own of the importance of faith in my life, of the ability to stand then on my own feet against, uh, you know, what was, um, I was an odd person by choice. <laughs> I was first awed by birth, and now I was awed by choice. And uh, I liked actually that, and uh, did, did uh, I enjoyed uh, wrestling with issues and uh, talking to my friends about it. And another part of the context of your growing up was a war that I think, for lots of our listeners, many of whom might not actually have been born uh, when it was going on. Do you mind just, in a very <laughs> shorthand as you can, sketching um, that war that framed your childhood and your personal experience of it? Well, what framed my childhood was partly the kind of pressure of the communist uh, situation on the churches, or any churches, but particularly uh, smaller smaller churches that were also culturally at odds with the, with the environment. But then, of course, uh, Yugoslavia was divided on religious and ethnic uh, lines, and after... Um, 1898 and uh, 18, uh, 1989. I'm slightly dyslexic, so I've got to concentrate on those numbers because they tend to invert themselves. Um, uh, once the kind of democratization processes uh, started, uh, the tensions that were there kind of surfaced uh, uh, and the war broke out in former Yugoslavia. And the so this war is with the, forgive me, the withdrawal of the Soviet Union and... Not so much withdrawal of Soviet Union because Soviet Union was never never part of our experience. Yeah, we were Yugoslavia was non-aligned, yeah. but nonetheless it was it was a kind of unitary state. Uh, Tito has imposed uh, the communist rule on the 
on the entirety of uh, what uh, was uh, Yugoslavia, and uh, kind of the, the great fault line of which um, uh, of which people speak, sometimes separating East and West, ran straight through former Yugoslavia between Eastern and Western. Part of Croatia was Western. Uh, and belonged to the to the Catholic it was Catholic and uh, Serbia was Eastern and belonged more to the Eastern kind of what sometimes people call Byzantine uh, a kind of sphere cultural um, uh, sphere and there was also a Muslim um, a minority population left over of the 500 years of occupation of most of what then was Yugoslavia so you had these um, major cultural tectonic plates. Three of them actually were right there in the former Yugoslavia, and actually it, uh, that that had, uh, along with other issues, uh, political and, and economic issues, that had a significant contributed significantly to um, to the conflict. And so my question then, as a Christian, was uh, was a Christian theologian at that time was. How, what's the role of the Christian faith? How, especially in for me, in my experience, because at that moment, uh, at that time, um, Croatians were the quote-unquote victims uh, in the war. It might have been otherwise. It was otherwise in previous uh, periods, but this was the situation where a third of the territory was occupied, uh, and I was standing. Mm, trying to figure out, so what do I do? I'm kind of committed to nonviolence, but at the same time, I'm committed to justice. And how do these two fit together? And in particular, what role does religion have uh, and faith can have in the conflicts of this sort, given that it was partly a legitimizing and motivating force for the conflict itself? You, uh, you're kind of Seminal book on on these issues, exclusion and embrace, starts with this very striking question asked by Eugen Moltmann, who's another extraordinary theologian um, uh, of the of the twentieth twenty first century. And he asks, "How can you, as a Croat, love a Serbian?" And I don't know how to pronounce this word. Chetnik, 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 uh, who were oppressing essentially your people, raping women, burning churches, uh, and you start the book by saying it was that question that sent me on this. And I, I always think we can be a bit pat with these issues. We can, we can, and it's particularly easy with some distance when we're reading a book or we're, you know, thinking theoretically to misunderstand, mis misunderstand or undervalue the sheer emotional power of that situation. So do you mind if you can remember taking me back to how did you feel when he asked you that question? What was your immediate response? Was it, I should do, but I don't? Was it, you know, some days yes, some days no? Was it no, and I can't, and this yeah. is my question of the gospel? Yeah, you, I mean, you you described the situation uh, situation well. Um, um, <laughs> my 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 sense was, and this was my experience even before uh, kind of he asked this uh, this question. Um, I had to think myself into wanting to do anything else but. Uh, figure out how I can get a few B-52s um, and level a few uh, a few cities in revenge. Or was in, that a, a viable option for you at, at points well, in your it life? Well, wasn't. It was a viable option in my imagination, <laughs> but it was a it was actually de facto the option that was taken, namely um, 
namely war, namely the, the sturdy uh, kind of resistance, uh, not just resistance, uh, but also a, a kind of um, uh, a kind of uh, there was an element of rage and, and revenge that was that was going on there, and which is what I completely can can understand. Um, but and this was what was going on in my own soul. And so when you ask what what were the options, uh, no, I can't. Yeah, that's also an option. Sometimes I can, sometimes I, I can, or I can during the day and wake up in the middle of the night and say, "Wow, this is crazy! I can't do this!" Right. Um, so all of these is as a kind of, um, storm that is raging inside. And that's why I found actually having a, something like a, an anchor of fundamental commitments, uh, a, a incredibly important, uh, thing so that I can step back from the storm in a sense and ask myself, well, what is the right thing to do? What is, what is in sync with what I truly believe is the nature of my own and uh, my enemies, uh, humanity. What ought to be done? Who ought I be so that I can be the kind of human that uh, I expect myself to be? Or I would say that my faith mm -hmm. kind of uh, is inviting me to be and to become. It's such a, I feel like that's the key question. Whenever I'm talking to anyone on this podcast or thinking broadly about these issues, the word that keeps coming back to me is formation, which is this very Christian word about who are we becoming? What kind of people are we orientating ourselves, you know, what things are we orientating ourselves towards in order to become different people? And other than a very kind of self-helpy, self-improvement narrative, it feels like that isn't necessarily that that present in our public conversations. And um, I wanted to ask, as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking, you know, you've you've experienced being involved in a war, being conscripted, being interrogated, and you and many others around the world have experienced actual violence, actual um, uh, death, murder, rape, breakdown. And one of the reasons I have these conversations is because I feel like the way we engage in, a, in, in peacetime or in societies that aren't currently in open warfare is not unrelated to that. And so I talk a lot about the public conversations and public debates and how do we engage with people different from ourselves and what are the kind of people we want to become and what are the kind of practices we can embed or the kind of habits to help us stop being triggered into these kind of slightly dismissive, tribal, you know, rude, spiky ways of engaging with people different from ourselves. But as I was preparing for this, I thought, oh my goodness, is this even in the same ballpark? Like, is this, isn't this just naive? Like, why, sh why should we be bothered about someone being rude to us on Twitter where... Somewhere else in the world, you know, someone's being macheted to death. So I guess my question is for someone who spent your whole career thinking about difference and disagreement, are they related or should we, uh, is it first world problems worrying about fractious public debates? No, I, I don't think it's first world problems. I, I think it's world's problems. Um, and in some ways, you know, um, I, I think that... Um, uh, um, I mentioned earlier that nonviolence is one of the important um, values that, that I espouse. And in some ways, um, espousing nonviolence and kind of entering into the fray of actual wielding of machetes or whatever other tools uh, one has in order to perpetrate violence is, is a bit futile. 
um, because people are kind of locked in in a deep conflict. It's, it's like a pub of brow, brawl. Um, you can intervene, uh, and you have to intervene by overwhelming power in order to stop because the entire momentum on each side is to fight, right? So that folks like uh, 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 like me or folks that are kind of advocate nonviolence actually uh, are more on the sidelines in th these kinds of situations. And I think the time to do something is when things of this sort aren't happening. That is to say, to cultivate the kinds of virtues, to uh, imagine a kind of a, a world, uh, tell a big story of everything in such a way that uh, nonviolence, that respect, that uh, seeking alternatives, uh, uh, learning how to engage with those who are profoundly different without um, resorting simply to shouting or self-assertion of one way or the other are actually fundamental things to do precisely in the absence of uh, kinds of conflicts that we are uh, dealing with. So I would say our time uh, is now. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, it's good to be legitimated in my, <laughs> my concerns, but I, <laughs> I think there's a deeper thing there in terms of we have responsibility, each of us as citizens, for how we engage. And I sometimes talk about us being in a, a nutritionist speak of us being in an obesogenic environment. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're in a conflictogenic environment yeah, and yeah. we need an active um, an, an active resistance against yeah. the conflictogenic environment. Um, so for listeners who, who want to be better at this, you, you know, you've written extraordinary books in this area. One of my frustrations with myself and with kind of thinky people is that in some ways the theory is easier than the practice. So what do you do? Are there practices or habits or things in your life um, that you do to make sure that you're not descending into kind of cr tribal and guarded um, bubbles, but are continuing to be someone who can be, you know, br a peacemaker or a bridge builder? Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's important. I was going to say uh, at the tail end of uh, of the previous question, uh, uh, question also, um, th this this is not and cannot be uh, a kind of public uh, issue kind of a matter or public uh, policy managing public policy or managing the public uh, or even cultural broader cultural sensibilities kinds of uh, kinds of an issue. Um, it has to be a very personal uh, issue. What's at stake is not just how we live together. What's at stake also is who each of us deep down are. What is the shape of my concrete uh, humanity? And I think your question is quite, uh, quite appropriate. There are things that we need to do uh, in the broader culture, there are institutional kinds of uh, uh, matters that we need to address. Uh, there are these environmental uh, questions, so that they wouldn't generate, as you suggest, the conflict, which which uh, which are important. But at the same time, they're very personal uh, questions of personal spiritual uh, disciplines, personal orientation of the of the self. And that, I think, goes all the way to the, some of the deepest desires that we have. Um, a, a kind of competitive uh, environment 
in a negative sense, uh, competitive in which I always have to affirm myself and my self-achievement over against somebody else um, is, for instance, what I worry all the time. Uh, you walk the streets, and if you are not, you need to be careful enough not to think that your self-worth somehow arises from you a looking, feeling, walking, whatever it is, better than somebody somebody else. The, the entirety of these kind of competitive, comparative uh, stance, which is obviously just one tiny slice of the of the whole thing, but but it's there, uh, and uh, we live in the kinds of environments where we need to um, achieve ourselves over against another, and the kind of discipline to think that. That kind of achieving oneself over against is a fundamentally at odds to who I actually want to be and want to become is a, is, is a very important aspect, for instance, of the, of the spirituality of the walk through the street, yeah. <laughs> let alone in many other, uh, many other areas. And for me, that means, um, you know, reading sacred text, uh, reading the Bible, reading the lives of some of the best of our, uh, our saints. Um, uh, remembering my childhood and some of the folks who formed me, like my saintly uh, nanny, absolutely spectacular person uh, who, if you looked her in the face, you would see uh, a babushka with a very wrinkled face with a mustache and uh, and, and a big, big uh, mole wart yeah. on, on her, uh, ab above her, above her lip uh and you would you would think oh that's uh, in terms of beauty that's uh standards of beauty that's just it's just awful uh and yet she's one of the most beautiful faces on the planet right because there is this beauty of the soul that sh her soul that shone through that which was absolutely amazing and that shaped my entire life power of uh, that face so much so that when i think of god i have a face of her name was Milica. Um, we were Croats. She was a Serbian woman who lived with us in our home. Uh, she was five, uh, five feet two. Uh, and uh, just a stunningly good soul. And angel of my childhood. So when I uh, think of God, I see God. Uh, your, reader, your listeners might know the story of the prodigal son, father in the story of the prodigal son who receives the prodigal back, right? But I see a face, this warts and mustache and babushka face of my own that I superimposed on it. So incredible. Individual, beautiful life, right? So that's where I try to find connection with so that the best of me won't be swallowed by this conflictogenic, is that what you said, yeah. <laughs> society in which we find ourselves. Yeah, that's helpful because I think the more I do this project and, and think in this area, the more I, the less I like those instincts in myself and the more I'm aware of how judgy I am and how, you know, myriad different groups of people I will feel uncomfortable about because I feel a bit less than them or I feel a bit intimidated by them or they don't like the same things that I like. And I feel myself constantly scanning the world for people who are 
who are like me or who like me. You know, there's, there's mm. the similarity and the affirmation, that sense of belonging, um, meaning. Where do you think those instincts come from in us? Because I hope they come from a good place. <laughs> and I guess theologically, what... Um, it's a, it's a very poorly framed question, but why do we find this so hard? Why do we find it so hard to be with people we disagree with who, or who, un, who aren't like us? Um, and you've written a lot about how you think the Christian story can help us. Well, I, I, think, I, I think intuition to, um, to like to be liked, <laughs> to like to be among those who are uh, like us. Um, it's, a, it, it's a beautiful intuition. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a Croatian. Um, I think it's a good that there are Croatians. I, I think it's a good that there is Croatian language. I, I think the kind of particularities of our lives, uh, whether that's cultural, whether that's uh, very personal, whether that's uh, kind of communal, uh, they are the stuff of the differences of uh, in humanity. And the only way to keep up this richness is by engage in boundary maintenance. So you somebody has to watch over the language, Croatian language, otherwise it might disappear as many languages uh, in the world have disappeared and with them the whole cultural worlds have disappeared. So, so I think that the sense of kind of belonging or sense of, for instance, being in a home, and belonging to home, I think that's really, uh, re really fundamental, and I think it's it's beautiful. I, I think um, the the difficulty emerges once we try to define things that we need to define that home simply over against somebody else's home, over against somebody else. That may be because we are put under great we perceive to be put under great pressure or we are put under the great pressure so that this which is precious to us seems to, to, to crumble. Um, it may be because um, we kind of walk uh, like John Wayne through the world, you know, thinking that we own it and therefore we can just obliterate what's not us and kind of incorporate it into who we are. Varieties of ways in, in, in which we uh, try to be, um, in a sense, uh, at home and nurture that at homeness. And some of them uh, you can see um, at the level of family, others you can see at the level of, say, um, reassertion of nationalism or cultural identity. Uh, some of them you can see it in assertion of uh, fundamentalist religions. These are our um, homes. <laughs> that we then defend with everything we can, not realizing that porousness, that openness to others is the part and parcel of the d dynamic of the healthy, uh, healthy home, and which presupposes that the world as whole is such that homes can be lived uh, both as a particular uh, experiences and uh, open to the larger world. I'm going to um, try and ground some of this in a few particular uh, areas of difference or division. Um, there is obviously quite a lot going on in the US at the moment around political divisions, but um, particularly I think um, in the church and a sense of upheaval and divide. And uh, the one I was thinking about most recently was particularly in the kind of evangelical churches. There's lots of women from that tradition saying, we feel like misogyny hasn't been taken seriously here. And 
Um, the abuse crisis has, hasn't been handled well and there's some real kind of fault lines developing in those churches. As you see that emerging, why do you think that, wh- why have we got there and what needs to happen in order that to be kind of healing and for any community really to hold together under those kind of pressures? Well, yeah, m- m- many, I take it, reasons why, for instance, something like misogyny has been part of the um, experience of um well, of the churches, but in particularly uh, of of women, um, um, a legacy of uh, patriarchy that has been with us before uh, Judaism or Christianity, or for that matter, any of the religious uh, great religious traditions came uh, came along. Um, um, partly. Um, uh, stabilizing a certain particular uh, roles uh, and um, imbuing them with the aura of uh, sacred, which then heightens those kinds of differences, partly ability of some people to use religion and even um, religions lending themselves to sacralize um or to hide um, appalling behavior behind the kind of veil of the sacred. Um, all of these things contribute to, uh, to, to experience, negative experiences. I think that for me, the key question is, do religious traditions, in this particular case, does Christian faith have inner resources in order to expose what's going on, and second, in order to kind of heal uh, and imagine alternative forms of relating. And I argue that that it does. Properly understood, uh, it does. Um, and so the question becomes, well, how do we how do, we do that? I think, I think we are helped from the critique on, uh, from the outside. I think that there is something like what, what one theologian called reverse prophetism. So prophets always think they're prophets, particular religious tradition, and then they speak to the outside somehow as a prophet. But uh, Paul Tillich spoke about reverse prophetism, when the outside speaks to you, and uh, suddenly you are seen from perspective that you don't see yourself, and you realize that this pattern of behavior is very unhealthy, let's sit back and think whether that's who we actually are or is that some um, twisting of ourselves that needs to be changed. Um, you've written quite a bit on Islam and in particular kind of commonalities between Christianity and Islam. And, you know, people can go and read all your work on that and it's fascinating and we could do a whole podcast on it. But I wanted to ask about the personal experience of that because um, it seems to me like you've got quite a lot of criticism from some sectors of the theological world. Is that fair enough? Yeah, that's fair um, enough. And... <laughs> Uh, what was that experience like for you? Did, did your academic training mean that that just is normal and you have a very thick skin about it? Was there woundedness? How did you process suddenly lots of people who might have seen you as an ally suddenly beginning to think, oh, well, we don't know what we think about Miroslav now? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I would say it's typical for academic. Academ- yeah, that there is a kind of academic disagreements which uh, which are typical, but this was stronger than that. It, it wasn't just just a disagreement. There was something visceral uh, about it. Um, oh, by the way, you know, I, I am a preacher's kid. Uh, growing up in uh, as a preacher's kid, 
if you don't have thick skin, uh, you pretty soon don't have skin. <laughs> you know, you're you're kind of uh, exposed always. Uh, um, just like many, uh, in, in this is in a small way mirrors what, what, for instance, celebrities often experience, criticisms that come uh, sometimes rightly, sometimes uh, wrongly. But this was something really visceral to uh, the, the reaction to my work on Islam, not just mine, but others uh, as well. I remember concretely a story which, which can illustrate that. Um, some years back when I was working on the, on the book, um, I went back to former, uh, to former Yugoslavia, to Serbia actually, where I grew up, and um, uh, in Novi Sad. And across the river of Novi Sad is, uh, is a fortress. Uh, and that fortress was built uh, when the Turks was uh, were retreating from after losing the Battle of Vienna. And the number of such fortresses that were built along, along the rivers, Drava River and Danube River. I was born actually in one such fortress in, in Osijek. Um, and then we were sitting in this beautiful fortress when I was a small kid. We used to play there. It was uh, amazing, amazing uh, experience because all these big moats and, uh, you know, you can play until your total heart's content. And, uh, you know, our parents would let us do it amazingly, um, all, all on, our, on our own. So I met up with some of, some of my friends from when I was a teenager, uh, and uh, all of them uh, kind of did part of this Christian group, uh, teenage in my father's church. And we were sitting uh, in the, on that fortress in a restaurant, which now has, has a restaurant. And so we sit in a circle, and um, just trying to catch up uh, what you've been doing. So my, my turn comes, and what, what are you doing? So I tell what, what I was doing and what I'm doing now. And I was writing the book on this question. So I uh, say by writing a book on whether Muslims and Christians believe in the same God. And I see a friend of mine. She admires me. She knows me since I was uh, for 40 years. She's known me well. And I could see immediately on her face, she was just completely distraught and angry uh, about this. And she just uh, bore into me uh, immediately. And it absolutely did not matter that I've studied this question carefully, right? It did not matter that she actually respected me. That's a close friend, right? It didn't, none of this, this, this mattered. What mattered was what was triggered somehow in her. And uh, um, a kind of a, kind of a fear of this uh, difference. Maybe it was the setting where we were. This is who Muslims are. And Muslims are the kinds of people for whom you have to build huge fortresses uh, in order to defend yourself uh, from them. Um, so, and I've experienced that many, many times. Uh, it does not. Reasons do not touch that at all. Uh, it's something deeply uh, visceral. And that's why I think that it's really important not simply to attend to the reasons when it comes to our way of life, but to in, uh, attend to the kind of shape of the self and to attend to the heart. Because all our kind of larger accounts of the good life are underdetermined by reasons. Mm. We don't, we cannot choose them on the basis of reasons alone. Reasons play a role, but they're underdetermined. And sometimes uh, in these situations, reasons, especially theories in place, reasons 
get shut out uh, and uh, people react. So that was my yeah. experience. So and, that's yeah. a very helpful story in terms of when I'm trying to describe what I mean by a sacred value. You know, there's there's lots of ungenerous interpretations of her reaction and to lots of Christians' reactions. And I'm sure that in some people, the ungenerous interpretation is deserved. But what immediately came to mind is, I think for a lot of Christians, one of their sacred values is the particularity of Jesus. And, you know, the sense of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life that sense of, yeah, the, the, the uniqueness, the, the individual, um, Christ's kind of central and individual um, role in salvation is a sacred value for many Christians. And it feels like one of the things that's happening is you were pressing on that. And she was feeling that pressed on and feeling that, ugh, that like slightly disgusted reaction that we get when our sacred values are under threat. Yeah, I, I think I think that was very very much so. Though, though, so for instance, if I ex- described to her, uh, w- w- which I which I did in this regard, uh, that that actually I, I'm I'm making no claims about salvation at all. <laughs> in this, Christians and Jews believe in the same uh, God, and has uh, relatively that specific question has relatively little implications for for a question of uh, that you're describing. The question that Jesus is the only uh, only way. And um, the same, I think, is true of Muslims. So, I, but but it's also a, a sense of uh, of national threat or something like. That. Sometimes I feel that there's a lot of history there. A lot of history there, but but I mean, the United States. There's zero history in the United States, and nonetheless, uh, well, except nine uh, eleven, right? Which is uh, compared to what happened five hundred years of Turkish occupation in former Yugoslavia, which is a little blimp, right, in the in the whole uh, uh, in the whole history. So, so I think these uh, th- these things are highly charged, and I'm uh, sometimes I feel like uh, I. Kinds of people who respond that way are very hard to reach. I need to wait for some kind of a transformation to occur. Um, and my hope is that in, say, Muslim-Christian relations, but also I think in some of our political debates, uh, there are people whose identity is so invested in difference that if you try to take that difference away or somehow... Um, uh, 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 call it into question. It, yeah. Diminish it. Call it into question. They, they crumble and they will not do it, right? So, so you have to attend to much the kind of the middle range. And I can tell also that it, I can tell you that in uh, in terms of reaction to my book, there's been also very different types of reactions. There have been people who said, "Wow, I never thought of it that that way." Uh, that provides it's not identity of uh, of uh, faiths but it provides a means by which we can share a common and inhabit a common uh, social uh, world because we have a lot of values that are overlapping and in fact not just that it can make it possible for us to share a uh, common space but it can make it makes it possible having common space makes possible also to have robust productive debates about what matters to us the most. And so uh, whether you think of it as something like bearing witness to your faith, or you think of it as having ability to live in under the common roof, for both of these reasons, having something in common is, um, is fundamental. Thank you. Um, I confess you are the first, I'm trying to scan now in case I've forgotten anyone, but you're the first kind of professional, academic, straight theologian that I've interviewed um, on this podcast. And that's given me pause because I've studied a lot of theology and 
part of what Theos does is public theology. Uh, but when I was thinking about the public conversation, theologians didn't immediately spring to mind as kind of active players. And your most recent book, for The Life of the World, is really making an argument for a sense that that is needed and the- theology should be playing that role, but it isn't as yet at the moment doing it. Um, so for the- lots of listeners are not religious and not particularly interested in theology. For them, why do you think theology has a role to play in our public debates? Well, you know, the big issue of our of our time, one of the big issues of our time, I think one of the issues that other underlies a number of other issues is that we have lost uh, a, a kind of public sense of what the good life is. Uh, good, the question of good life has been very much privatized. It has become not just my decision, but it has become a, a kind of my dream. It has become... Uh, a matter of my taste, something that I pursue now and I can tomorrow change and so forth. Um, And a lot of people have a sense that something profound about our humanity is lost. If we think about our lives simply chasing one dream after the next, um, our lives uh, tend to lose weight, uh, the significance, uh, we get decoupled from the larger story, which gives them uh, give them meaning. Whatever I invest meaning in now, I can take that meaning back, which means that uh, I, I end up uh, living a life that, that, that are rather, rather kind of on the surface. Right? And it seems to me that uh, we have unlearned to think about who we are as human beings. And I think for me, it's very important. Uh, that question is very important as a Christian, but this is something that Christian faith shares with other great world uh, traditions. They're all unified in this question. There is something like living a true human life, and there's something like living a false human life. And the truth of human existence, we can debate about it, but they all agree that there is such a thing, <laughs> and we have lost that sense. Right? And I think theologians, or first the thinking Christians, need to retrieve that sense of um, how do I think about the truth of my own existence, but how do I think it in conjunction with other people around me who see the truth of their existence, in very different way. How can I robustly pursue what's the most important question of my life, actually? What happens to who I am uh, and how I live are the most important questions of my life. You know, people say, you live only once. And by that, they mean grab any opportunity to have as much fun as you can. I say the same thing, you live only once. Live that life from the beginning to the end with the depth, with the meaning, so that there is a kind of weight to your existence. Now, that question to be retrieved uh, and to be put at the center of our uh, public discourse as well would be what I hope theologians can contribute in conversation with other great traditions. In fact, we teach a course at Yale uh, called Life Worth Living, which takes up precisely that question, not how do I succeed in one or the other endeavor that I undertake, which is a hugely important question, especially in a, in a time when we are pretty fragile, actually. Uh, but how do I succeed as a human being? What does it mean to succeed as a human being? And we 
teach that course in conversation with other secular and religious uh, traditions, because I think that's the most important question of our lives. That's what theology should be about. That's what theology has been actually about for many centuries. Marislav Wolf, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.